Welcome to another edition of Consensus Unreality. Before we get into today's episode, we want to invite you to join us over at patreon.com slash consensus unreality, where we host exclusive episodes, discussions, feedback experiments, written content, and much more. We are planning to move over some of the kind of stuff that we'll put on the main cast uh, on over to the Patreon. We're going to expand it a little bit, have a little bit more of everything we've been doing already, and... It's sort of the best way you can support us. It's $5 a month. And if you like what we do over here in the free podcasts, uh, yeah, you'll be seeing a lot more of that kind of stuff over on Patreon. And it's the best way to support Ben and David of Consensus Unreality. So here is another beautiful episode. episode 50. All right, welcome to episode 50 of Consensus Unreality. Today we're joined by Alan Greenfield, a cultist and ufologist and the author of books like Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, and the recently reissued Saucers and Saucerers. Um, and we're going to be getting into a bit of the connection between the realms of the occult and UFOs today, along with maybe some golden age ufological lore. Welcome to the show, Alan. I'm so glad to be here. But then at my age, I'm so glad to be anywhere. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a good way to look at things. Um, cool. Uh, so what's uh, what's been going on with you? How's, how's everything going? You just put out this new book. Or it's, so it's a reissue of an earlier book, right? Yes and no. I mean, it's... It's the only actual, the original edition was like in 1975, 76, when the stuff in there was, you know, current. And it was the only thing I've ever done, at least as books go, uh, that was self-published. So it came from PANP Press, Pan American New Physics Press, (laughs) i.e. myself. Yeah. And I think it maybe sold, oh, 100 copies, mostly to friends and enemies and, you know, frenemies. And uh, then I got invited to uh, Fate Magazine put on this once in a lifetime convention in Chicago. So I'm bragging to my then wife, hey, I'm a somebody in this area. I may be a nobody here in Atlanta, but I'm a somebody in ufology. And I get there. And they put me over in a side room opposite Ray Palmer. (laughs) So I had like eight people in the audience, one of whom was Jerome Clark. Mm -hmm. And I took it out on him. I said, you know why there's nobody here other than, you know, family members? (laughs) It's your fault, Jerry. And he said, 
I said, you're not a street hippie like me. And he said, well, I used to be. I said, well, you're away from the streets too long. And it went on like that for, I didn't talk about the book or anything. I just harangued for an hour and a half about how unfair this was. So the room empties out, Jerry first, of course. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't feeling too good, I suppose. Uh, maybe because of, you know, uh, perhaps his, oh, I just blurred out. That's scary. <laughs> was he uh, Was he right behind your Illuminati handlers? They were like, this guy's okay. We got him. <laughs> uh, no, he was probably the Illuminati handler for the, the convention sent him as a courtesy, you know. So I'm feeling less than great, you know. And so even my wife leaves the room. So I think, okay, I have totally uh, lost any credibility here. Although at that convention, you know, I, I mean, Margaret Mead was there. Kenneth Arnold was mm. there. Oh, wow. People that later you really couldn't have seen. Mm. And a man walks into the room and he said, can I have an autograph? And I thought, well, he's not the first autograph I've had, but he's, he's not more than the 10th or 15th, so I'll be glad to. So I autograph his copy of Saucers and Saucers, which he already had from, I don't know, uh, stolen editions or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and he said something to me that has stuck with me through the years. He said, this book completely changed my life. Hmm. So that made the convention for me. Yeah. So what I did was um, I don't really have any uh, creative control over, uh, you know, what my publisher brings out, but I am asked. And I said, well, if you, you know, do an update and get one of the other uh, middle ufologists, as we used to call ourselves, i.e. the teen ufologists of the 1960s, <laughs> grown a somewhat older, <laughs> mostly living in God's waiting room. And no, that's not fair. <laughs> uh, and uh, so Rick Hilberg, uh, yeah. uh, who's very skeptical of uh, current ufologists. Uh, anyway, he wrote a new introduction for it. And I believe the publishers uh, changed some things around and, you know, just basically without updating the internal material, it starts off with an explanation for the phenomena, which was unpopular then and which is becoming increasingly popular now. Yeah. So I stand by it more or less. And uh, although I think, you know, I could articulate it better now and uh, uh, the the story of the people who were neither contactees nor nuts and bolts uh, ufologists, as we right. just disparagingly call <laughs> the uh, the idiots who yeah. think disclosure is coming any minute now. Yeah, which yeah. I got in ufology in 1960, and disclosure was coming any minute now. Right. And <laughs> Jesus is coming back right. any right. minute I was now. About that. Yeah, it's, it sounds like that. Yeah, it sounds a lot like that. Yeah. And I, I even suspect, not to sound uh, conspiratorial, but this is one that, that fits really well. Ray Palmer thought it was the case. The way NICAP the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena at 1536 Connecticut Avenue, Washington, D.C., <laughs> official sounding thing with Major Kehoe and a board consisting of, I think the head of the board at that time was Admiral Hillencutter. 
it sounds like that was kind of a CIA front hmm. because hmm. it was formed by a civilian by the name of Townsend Brown, about whom I know his name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and shortly thereafter, Kehoe takes over and the board consists of his uh, people from his classmates at the, at the Naval Academy hmm. and uh, including the first head of the CIA. Right. So it, it doesn't take too much imagination to say maybe that was the diversion. It's all about nuts and bolts, but yeah. they can't land. You know, they can hover above us and they can be from other planets, but they've never landed. And anybody who says otherwise is a damn liar. <laughs> That's funny. It's so similar to today. Uh, it feels like the same kind of camps and the same. Well, what are the tip or whatever they're calling yeah. themselves now? Like it's it's all the same formula of like Academy probably to the CIA. Stars. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, uh, the empire never ended. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the empire <laughs> never ended is true. But unlike a lot of the conspiracy theorists, I don't think uh, the government has any real interest in uh, UAP. I hate that term. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's right. a yap. Yap, 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 yap. Sounds like the dog across the hall. But uh, <laughs> uh, so their interest in ufos has always been very low-key what they are interested in are when they test some sort of stealth flying machine of whatever vintage they want to know what kind of reactions they're getting to it and a great cover story there is oh maybe those were you know Yaps, <laughs> unidentified aerial phenomena. But don't worry, they're not from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. ours or perhaps the Russians. Well, these days, the Russians have trouble getting, you know, getting their missiles off the ground, much less anything else. So I yeah. guess it's the Chinese, you know, <laughs> right. and the North Korean, the axis of evil. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it seems like there's, uh, yeah, I think we're probably on the same page about that. It, it feels like it's just a useful myth. I mean, whatever else it is for the government, I guess it's just like a way to brush something away while still being able to be semi-public about what it looks like or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course, there are concerns about some other country developing a very advanced technology, which uh, all you have to do is read a lot of headlines, which I do because I post interesting ones on Twitter on a daily basis. And China seems to be at least claiming to do really lots and lots of very, very advanced things that I haven't heard from our side of the Pacific at all. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's concern about some kind of advanced stealth aircraft there, but I'm speculating there. I have no reason to believe that that is the case. And why would they be flying over U.S. airspace, let alone Argentine airspace or, you know, Saudi airspace or any other place outside of uh, the considerable territory that China rules and or claims to rule. So uh, right. uh, I, I doubt that that's the case, but I understand that as the concern. The original concern of the CIA was 
you have to have been alive in the 1950s during the McCarthy era to really fully understand how plausible this sounded then to most people, really, that uh, after the uh, July 1952 wave over D.C., where a lot of UFOs were seen, jets were scrambled, they showed up both visibly and on radar, and it was headline news. In fact, that was my first memory. Of UFO stuff, a guidance uh, from my childhood was, oh, that sounds really interesting, or whatever the childhood equivalent was. Probably hmm. it was, and yeah, I want an ice cream cone. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah. and here, uh, here you was, are now, I guess. Yeah. Then, then six months later, the CIA convenes a panel, and among the things they decide to do is. Uh, take a look at the private UFO organization, excuse me, flying saucer, UFO term had not existed at that mm. point. The flying saucer organizations, because they may be infiltrated by the communists mm. who may use it in order to mask a Soviet invasion. At that time, they had no missiles, so it was, right. you know, yeah, uh, that's not from other planets, that's coming from the Soviet Union. So um, maybe they did infiltrate uh, uh, such tiny UFO organizations as existed in the early 1950s, uh, specifically Al Bender's organization, which was maybe 10 people. I don't know. It was Mm. very small. But I think it was just part of the uh, red scare of the 1950s, and it looks stupid today and uh, it probably was stupid even then you know mm, I'm always uh, let's get let's consult a chairman Stalin on this what can we do to fool the Americans into not stopping our bombers why don't we send rumors of flying saucers right. through the Communist Party USA which even then you know was a much diminished organization and mm. By the time I ran across them in the uh, the peace movement, you could always identify them because they were little old ladies who would sit in different places around the room and would say things like, let's have a march in a working class neighborhood, which to people of a younger generation, they'd what the hell is a working class neighborhood? <laughs> who the hell are these ladies? Yeah, that's, so, that's like a big part of uh, George Van Tassel's story as well, correct? Um, at the yeah, meeting sure. of Giant Rock. Um, I know that the he was actively being investigated by the FBI. Uh, it's dispu- disputed uh, how large that investigation was, but it certainly played a role in the later part of his life. Um, but yeah, I mean, so much to unpack here. I would love it if you could just give us a, a little bit of a background on how you got interested in the occult and uh, how you sort of turned that over towards an interest in ufology, uh, applying the cipher it uh, well, the cipher came much later, and sure. that was a product of my second wife's second husband, a genius by the name of Tim Coutte, who uh, worked with the group that had developed the cipher in England strictly for occultist purposes. And when I was shown it, I went, Oh, that's another occult theory. 
And because uh, Tim had developed a very, very sophisticated uh, mainframe computer program, which he was able to transfer to the floppy disks of the time, um, uh, now lost in memory, although my publisher says they, they can, you know, read floppy disks from what I don't know, maybe directly, you know, yeah, I yeah. see in this disc. <laughs> like a crystal, yeah. <laughs> you can <Yeah>. scry it. <laughs> you can scry, well, yeah, you can always scry it. <laughs> it's just looking at a little well-named floppy disk. It's, oh, well, I can see the, the aliens are right here in Uranus. But don't get personal with me, boy. Okay. So ignore that, people. I'm really a nice guy, despite what people tell me. And uh, so where was I? I, I, do, I do digress. And, uh, so what what happened is probably, I will leave that to the uh, psychology community, but I got interested in my pubescent period, 12 to 14, in a bunch of things at the same time. Um, I had a minor UFO sighting, which I now think was two jets flying, you know, uh, in formation, Top mm. Gun and all that mm -hmm. crap. And, uh, uh, but, they appeared circular. And I had just read an article in some little magazine of that period that gave NICAP's address. So I sent them a report and they said, why don't you join us at $15 a year or whatever it was? And I thought, wow, all I wanted to do was do my duty and report to the official sources and they want me to join them. Uh, something they later regretted, by the way. <laughs> but but that happened the same year I joined the Science Fiction Book Club, which uh, gave cheap legal knockoff editions of the current science fiction books of that period. And I joined the Mystic Arts Book Society, which was universities armed for their uh, general policy of that period, which is if it's not nailed down by copyright and has something to do with metaphysics or the occult, we will publish it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, all the classics came my way. Even the first tarot deck that I read was, uh, and, the, and one of the only two, as far as I've ever been able to uh, divine that, uh, uh, that existed at that time, the, uh, uh, so-called Rider Pact. Actually, it should be called the Pamela Coleman Smith deck because mm. she drew it, but uh, they tend not to credit women with that sort of thing. So uh, uh, I, I, that was that was the bonus one month. And anyway, so all of that was circa 1960-61. Mm. In 1961, I... I I was an avid reader of Ray Palmer's magazines, and one of them was Flying Saucers, formerly known as Flying Saucers from Outer Space, which to, to Ray's credit, he dropped the from outer space because uh, like me at a much later time, uh, that didn't really fit what was being reported. Mm. And if you were willing to take in some of the 
really, really weird stuff. Yeah. Uh, it, it just didn't fit that. It fit more in with apparitions and psychic phenomena than with uh, the what was then popular. They are beings from Mars mm -hmm. who are coming here, right. you know, uh, which apparently they've left Mars and have <laughs> moved further out into the universe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, those interests were I, why I don't know, but they were they all arose at the same time, and to me they always seem to be part and parcel of the same uh, same thing. Now, when I would ask uh, NICAP about that, in the person of the late and unlamented Richard Hall, he'd always say, oh, no, no, this shaver stuff, ignore that because it's crazy stuff because it's well known, they don't land, you know, and there aren't any. So uh, I got tired of NICAP long before I left them because they were just, if it wasn't nuts and bolts and didn't have these imaginary limitations on them, uh, then it wasn't real. And that means they were prejudging the evidence and, uh, uh, by the time I was uh, oh, 18 or so, I traveled around the world. I'd been uh, to a dozen different countries in different cultures. I had matured in my view of everything, including uh, the notion that theory comes after observation, not the other way around. If you start off saying this is the way it is and then look for evidence of that, you will find evidence of it. You know, the moon is made of green cheese. Yeah, well, maybe. And, you know, but it, it gets hard when the astronauts bring it back from the moon. Hmm. It turns into rock because of the uh, oxidation that happens. In the, I mean, you can always come up with a flat earth uh, theory sure. oh if you guys are flat earthers i i <laughs> deeply apologize <laughs> we, for that. Yeah, yeah we accept your apology <laughs> <laughs> yeah not not yet but you know yeah give us a couple um, yeah. of years maybe. and there are no birds birds all are right. all you know they're secret uh, uh spies that yeah. uh, float around and take mm -hmm. pictures of us in the bathroom and all sorts of really, really, really uh, nice stuff. <laughs> yeah, none funny, none yeah. of which I believe, you know. No. Right. It's funny that you brought up uh, Shaver. Yeah, I was going to ask you if if the Shaver stuff, because if you were reading like the Palmer magazines, was that like an early influence on you, the Shaver mythos? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And through through a variety of things, which led me eventually to getting to know Shaver pretty well and oh, Palmer. Yeah. I'm but, jealous. Uh, I, I love, I read, like his stuff is just so. Well, he's dead now, so I you're going to have to dig him up as it yeah. were. But, uh, you know, go for it. <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. Arcan in Arkansas, it's probably legal. Uh, <laughs> if you have fans in Arkansas, I, I deeply apologize for, for that comment. But, you know. Huh. Yeah. But, uh, um, the, the Shaver stuff, not so much on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level, struck mm. me immediately. Yeah. Not as necessarily as he wrote it through Palmer, because everything he wrote when I started to correspond with him, uh, he did need a lot of editing if you wanted other people to see it, mm. yeah. which he claimed it was because the Dero were 
deeming uh, 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 certain rays at him that kept him his kept him from typing in a proper order, even though he meant it that way. I mean, Shaver was unquestionably a bit titched, but I think he was on to something. I don't think that there is a hollow earth, and I don't think that the Dero and Tiro and the whole ancestral myth is uh, as he put it, but like Palmer, uh, and with, I think, more evidence because, you know, I, I've continued to pursue it. There are portals often in caves and caverns and even mine shafts mm. that appear to be consistent with the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, mm. i.e. that there are other uh, brains, B-R-A-N-E-S, membranes that are, they constitute really alternate realities. Mm. And I think that uh, the first time Shaver encountered that in the 1930s was through, he was a welder and welding arcs are funny things to begin with, if you've ever yeah. uh, fooled around with them. Mm. And that was his first experience. And then after that, you know, once you're in touch with, it's like repeat uh, um, abductees. If you've had it happen once, chances are it's going to happen more than once. Mm. Not always, but often. So I credit his account. And it turns out there were a lot of other people that wrote to uh, Amazing Stories and, uh, well, the, the uh, ones that Palmer edited in, in the late 40s that I was fortunate enough to uh, get some copies of from Bill Starkenstein's Bucateria in Daytona Beach, Florida, <laughs> which they he was selling them, you know, old editions that he had in his uh, book stall, I think you would call it, for like, you know, a dollar or two dollars or whatever. So I had, uh, I'm very allergic to old paper, but I, I put up with it to, yeah. to read those things. And uh, long before, you know, Shavertron or any of that, I mm. thought this stuff, um, it sings to me in an archetypal sense. Mm -hmm. It sounds like another reality, but it sounds like another reality that is real, not imaginary. And uh, there's a lot of reinforcement for that. People were writing Palmer, uh, apparently thousands, if you believe his you know, account, saying, I had the same kind of experience. I walked into uh, you know, fill-in-the-blank cave, and I suddenly was in the inner earth and blah, blah, and, uh, you know, the, and the Nortans and the Atlans, and the whole mythos there. But I tended to interpret that in terms of being portals to otherware. Hmm. And um, from the very beginning, um, and uh, never really thought that the earth was hollow, although there are intriguing moments like the alleged diary of Admiral Byrd going beyond yeah. the North Pole and still going north, which yeah. is a totally different uh, appearance for that. So, yeah, Shaver was at the time a major influence on me, but it was a, a, it was a guidepost in a sense because it showed that beyond the realm of our conventional reality, all of these uh, phenomena plural, uh, represent some kind of 
uh, interaction or intrusion, as the case may be, from other realities into ours, sometimes very briefly. I like to cite the, the scene in the, uh, the original Matrix where seeing the cat do the same thing twice is a, is a signal that uh, Smith is coming to take you away mm -hmm. because it's a glitch in the matrix. And there are glitches all the time because uh, according to uh, M theory, uh, these other realities, I mean, they have not arrived at a point where they can say, well, you can go to them and they can come to you, but they will be, in my opinion. It's just a matter of, uh, working the math, and historically, physicists don't don't do that real quickly. They, particularly something that is liable to cost them their grants, but I think it will eventually work into something that is penetrable. Mm. Just as light speed is probably not the ultimate speed that is possible, it's the ultimate speed that's possible within certain parameters. But before I, you know, dump on Einstein, which I won't, you know, <laughs> us Jews stick together. <laughs> yeah. But uh, because it's a conspiracy, it's an international Jewish conspiracy. <laughs> but don't tell anybody. Nobody knows that we're out there doing this thing. And we control the banks and most of the universe. Yeah. Uh, there was a book uh, about <laughs> yeah. the OTO that said the OTO was, I think it was called Blood on the Altar by Craig Heimbichner. And it said that the, the OTO was the secret Illuminati organization that controlled the world. And two, its two great leaders are Jim Wasserman and Alan Greenfield. <laughs> well, I couldn't resist. I wrote this guy and I said, you know, A, Jim Wasserman and I, although we do share an ethnic heritage, hate each other and couldn't stand to be in the same room together, much less ruling the world. And B, I know the OTO, I've been in it for 20 years at that time. I said, they couldn't lead successfully a Boy Scout march on a burlesque house. I mean, really, you know, the 45 caliber killer and all it's a bunch of incompetent boobs. Right. Excuse me. Now, I mean, not everybody in it is, well, everybody in it now is probably, it's left to the incompetent boobs. Uh, but uh, anyway, Wasserman is dead now. I'm happy to say. <laughs> I feel so bad about saying that. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, we were going to ask you about the uh, your time in the OTO. And was that what sort of led to the split with that or, or, you know, why did you decide to move on from that organization? Um, it was a mutual decision <laughs> or basically it was, I quit. You can't quit. We fire you. No, uh -huh. I quit. And it was like that, but turns out when they got around to that, because it was the same year they gave me all of these awards and there, you know, I still have them, not on the wall, just as a matter of file, you know. Thank you for heading our prison ministry. Translation, nobody else wanted to do it, apparently. And the U.S. Uh, Grandmaster uh, always assigned me stuff that I think nobody else would take. 
I don't know whether that was intended as a compliment or not, but anyway, so uh, yes. And another one for citing, this is the same year they decide they don't want me no more. You know, this is after I've quit all of my offices. So, that, you know, so, I mean, uh, which they conveniently forgot. And I had to remind them of and point out the dates on emails and things. I said, you, in, the, in the spirit of, you can't fire me. I quit. <laughs> I quit a year ago. I'm done with you. I'm real done with you. I'm real, real done with you. And there were certain moments that were part of my being done with it. I mean, the, the, the ritual stuff and the general ideas, although just like NICAP, they're restricted to within certain spaces because this is a religious organization as it now describes itself. It, uh, when I got in it, it was a philosophical organization because I, I really didn't need another goddamn religion. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> we, we have plenty of those and uh, you know, if you want something a little on the weird side, you've got Scientology and the Harry Krishnas. And uh, hey, if you guys are Scientologists and or Harry Krishnas, <laughs> I, I'm deeply uh, sympathetic no. to your your plight in life. I'm yeah. shutting down my Thetan reader right now, but uh, uh, <laughs> just just hold on to those soup cans yeah. and hope for the uh, the return of Elrond. <laughs> which is a, another interesting OTO story of sorts. Oh, yes, right. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, he kind of modeled on the OTO. Right, absolutely, yeah. And according to his son, it was quite deliberately that. He said, Scientology is just our moneymaker, but you, you get into the Thalamic magic and you know the inner secrets of how to control people, which is, I'm, I'm sure the OTO would be delighted if they could control people, but I mean, there, there's, you know, the rituals take you, they pick you up, they pick your pocket, you know, <laughs> there is a charge for each one and they are off Masonic rituals until you get to the seventh degree. And then it, uh, it changes because there aren't any, there weren't any rituals associated with it when during, except at the very end of, of my period uh, involved. And again, it was 20 years. So you saw a lot of changes under uh, Big Bill, hmm. Big Bill, hmm. Big Bill, the, uh, the college dropout. But that's um, okay. It sounds so. Uh, so condescending, but Bill is one of those people who, while it may not be literally true, it fits him. He's one of those guys who did way too much acid in the 60s, <laughs> yeah. where everything makes a certain kind of sense. Anyway, so I had a couple of occasions that were like, I won't say I wasn't into it for the first 10 years, but then they made me a sheriff, i.e. a sovereign grand inspector general, which happened to coincide with my getting a, uh, from a friend who was in Delta security. This is right after 9-11. So Delta security was suddenly beefed up a lot. Um, and so she, uh, she gave me a um, standby fly card, which 
allowed me to hang around any flight that was uh, uh, underbooked, I guess you would say, or overbooked and somebody didn't show up or whatever. And then I flew free anywhere I wanted to. So it was just a question of, you know, if I had patience. So I was a uh, traveling inspector general <laughs> and everything I saw about local OTO bodies convinced me, first of all, that there was no correlation whatsoever between one's degree of initiation in the formal system of the OTO and how advanced spiritually or metaphysically or whatever you want to call it, hmm. magically, a person was. There were people who, you know, came in off the street who were very advanced and there were people who were at the highest level of the organization who didn't know Scheisswasser, we'll say. <laughs> uh, yeah. Didn't know much. And uh, therefore, uh, that was, you know, that was suspect number one. Mm. Uh, suspicion number two was a conversation I had with King Dave, the American Grandmaster, where uh, I and some other SGIGs felt like we were being mysteriously held back from the uh, Supreme Grand Council, I think it's called. Mm. This is an organization at that time at its peak of like 3,000 members worldwide. So this was, you know, a tiny knot of people. If it's organization for world change, it's, right. it's a lot smaller now. And I suspect that was maybe a, a computer just, <laughs> it must be an earthquake. Actually, we had an earthquake here in Georgia, but nobody felt it. Or at least I did, you know. And at that time, did you um did you run into any of like the the Kenneth Grant affiliated lodges, like the New ISIS or the the stuff that was going on in the states? Um, I believe. Oh yeah, uh, I I have come to feel that while the uh, authoritarian structure inhibits any kind of real learning, that Grant was on the, the right track with his ideas, largely influenced by uh, Michael Berdio, mm -hmm. um, all along. And if anybody is even remotely the rightful, you know, heir to the OTO, whatever that may mean, since I don't think anybody is, it's like the golden dawn, you know, there are disruptions at various points that I find uh, uh, suspect. I mean, it's, it's just fine if people, you know, want to revive something and, uh, but it's dishonest to say we are the uninterrupted uh, original of the 15th century. I mean, that's Masonic crap. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it just, it isn't the case. Uh, there are disruptions and there are uh, recreations and uh, uh, certainly the OTO uh, is among them. However, Grant, although he had the habit of throwing people out of his organization if they diverted at all, which I uh, 
that's part of the uh, authoritarianism of the of the system that I don't like. Um, his ideas, as conveyed in his books, and people who were, well, you would say at one time were part of his organization, had been kicked out but continued to work in the same general direction, like uh, the uh, Cincinnati Journal of Ceremonial Magic people and uh, – there's a, there was a group from upstate New York. I don't know what's happened to them, but uh, Bill Siebert was the uh, sort of master of ceremonies in, in that group. They were on the right track, and they accomplished a great deal more than the OTO Inc. Uh, has ever accomplished because they say we have one central secret. Well, it's not a secret. And it is indeed one, and there are many. So if anyone wants to know those secrets for whatever they're charging now, my best-selling book at the moment, <clears throat> are you ready for the plug, <laughs> is The Grail Within, a frank and personal account of sexual magic and who I didn't know. No, no. <laughs> Actually, it is. If you read between the lines, I had somebody who read it who said, I said, well, oh, I changed all the names. I said, well, if you knew the people, you can sort of, you know, figure out who they were. And I said, whoopsie daisy. Okay. But uh, it's uh, selling like hotcakes, you know. Originally, right. I thought it should be only for initiates. So I... Uh, had printed through, uh, was it Luxor Press? I guess it was Luxor Press, 93 signed and numbered copies that I handed out free of charge to what I regarded as 93 high initiates. I guess if you count my mother's copy, you know, that may be. <laughs> but, uh, which, what she made of it, I. I <laughs> wouldn't even uh, she just say oh alan you're always doing this sort of stuff oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny um yeah no it's interesting you mentioned the cincinnati journal um the bait cabal and nema and them um i kind of see a little bit of a similarity in terms of the and correct me if i'm wrong but yeah in terms of the secret cipher and what they were doing in terms of um like super imposition onto the the landscape and stuff um, with some of the workings that they were performing. I see a similar thing with the use of the cipher, applying the cipher um, and making connections, uh, creating language or, or letting language arise where it might not have been seen previously. Um, and it got me thinking about like retro causality um, manifestation. And I was wondering if... Um, if you found that applying the cipher is a means of decoding or if it's more of a means of conjuration or, or like superimposition, if that makes any sense. Uh, that's very close to the, to the most important question I have about it, uh, which I frame in the following way. Is the cipher meant to be decoded as it is in, I should say, in the complete secret cipher, the euphonauts, because you can buy, you know, secret cipher, the euphonauts and secret rituals of the men in black separately. And I think it costs more than just to buy the complete secret cipher, which is both mm -hmm. books. 
And there are rumors of a third book being prepared. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm, I'm not supposed to talk about that. <laughs> so I'm not talking about the rumored third copy, which talks about the Black Lodges and all of that. So, shh, don't tell anybody. This is just for you and the 40 million people that no doubt are in. Well, you can always hope. You never know what's going to spin out of control. I certainly hope so. So uh, the other possibility is just as things like the Fibonacci sequence seem to be encoded into the nature of the universe or the nature of reality, depending on how you look at it, is the, the cipher may decipher because it's an inherent way of decoding what the universe is all about. In other words, it becomes more like Kabbalah and less like a code. But I think, you know, if, if the uh, answers that you come up with are useful and meaningful and uh, provide objective evidence of something paranormal, then which theory you're operating under probably is less important than uh, using the cipher. Uh, the, the history of it is that the uh, people who were doing the British Journal of Ceremonial Magic, uh, Jim Lees and Carol Smith and Jake Straton Kent, who there's a rumor that Jake is the, the, uh, the grand poobah of the British OTO now, which I hope for his sake isn't true, <laughs> but because he's a good guy and I can't imagine his accepting that, but who knows? Power corrupts and absolute power, blah, 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 blah. Lord Acton, whoever he may have been. Uh, but uh, they, uh, Jim Lees went on a magical retreat uh, the exact nature of that, I don't know. But uh, Crowley's famous John St. John retreat probably was very similar. Mm. And he discovered the the cipher embedded in Liber Alva Legis, the Book of the Law, which I don't consider to be uh, more significant than other sacred texts from the same period, you know, like Alhaspi and the Urantia book, and mm. uh, I hesitate to mention it, but the Book of Mormon, that was just, there were a lot of holy books uh, just <laughs> falling from the universe at that time. And uh, he came up with a cipher, and it worked on questions that they had about what this Thelemic thing was all about. Mm. And that migrated to... Uh, my late uh, friend uh, with the uh, name which foreshadowed much of the 21st century, William Wallace Webb, W.W. Mm -hmm. Webb, <laughs> <laughs> the head of the order QBLH, which there really wasn't any structure to. There was never very much 
uh, of a membership. They put out a journal in upstate New York, and it was put out by uh, Tim Coutte, among others, called Thelema until OTO Inc. said, you can't use that term. That term is uh, is a trademark of the real OTO incorporated. So, but uh, he moved to Atlanta and uh, my uh, second wife was uh, available. So he married her and he turned out to be a better friend than she was, but he, he turned me on to this thing. And I thought, well, another occult code. There's so many hidden codes going back to at least the uh, Kabbalistic stuff and most prominently in magical circles at that time was the Enochian stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's, that's a code in and of itself. And it's a, apparently a true language. Uh, so whether that makes it authentic or not is uh, it works for magical workings. That's all I can say about that. Mm. Anyway. So when I, when I was given a copy of Lexicon, which was the program that I mentioned, uh, developed, by the way, uh, by night by Tim uh, at, uh, I believe he was working for the Ford Motor Company in upstate New York. And it was developed on their mainframe computers. And for all I know, is still running there somewhere in the, <laughs> in the, the deep space. And without, you know, any knowledge of Henry Ford, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, <laughs> kind of an Edsel type thing. That was a car right, right. back when I was young and dreams were new. Um, so, um, I don't even remember exactly why. Maybe the secret chiefs whispered in my ear, Alan, try it on some of these stupid names that show up in contactee cases. And I said, why are you whispering? <laughs> Nobody else can hear you. This is, you know, the secret chiefs. So I tried it on Orthon, who was this blonde, blue-eyed, tall alien who sort of resembled the uh, Aryan myths mm -hmm. that came out of, uh, according to my late friend Jim Mosley, Adamski was uh, a notorious anti-Semite. Right. His primary witness was, uh, help me here. He was once important he went by brother something or other. Uh, uh, George, wasn't George Hunt Williamson. Was yes. Yeah. William, mm -hmm. Williamson yeah. came out of the I am movement and yeah. that came out of William Dudley Pelly's right. silver shirt movement. So right. these, these guys were uh, into blonde, blue eyed, superior right. beings, but to my surprise, Orthon immediately yielded the same value as Jesus. And at that time, less so now, but at that time, your standard image in America anyway, and probably in Euro-American civilization of Jesus was this blonde, blue-eyed, Aryan, benevolent looking guy who very much uh, resembled 
the descriptions of Orthon. And who would have guessed that that's, you know, they had the same cipher value. So I tried it on a bunch of others and it made perfect sense. And then I started to try it on dates. By then I thought, there's a book in this somewhere. (laughs) And from there we go to the, the whole story of how I got around to writing the original secret cipher, the Euphonauts, and how uh, the the uh, sainted memory of Ron Bonds gave me my first break as an author by publishing it from uh, the late and totally lamented Illuminate Press. Yeah, uh, I think Ron paid for yeah, it with his here. life. Yeah, that that's. Uh, it sold well back in the day. I mean, yeah. it was uh, sold out and Ron bought the, the successor volume, but I, I eventually got around to suppressing that because I got a strong lecture in a closed-in car <laughs> overlooking a cliff <laughs> from uh, uh, Bill, the ultimate uh, head of the Right. Oto. And that was uh, basically, you shouldn't be writing books on UFOs. It costs you a Grand Lodge position. I'm trying to think. I was going to ask you about that. If there was like a a tension for, because I guess it seems so obvious to have an interest in both things, but I guess within like the the halls of the the lodges, it was not as smiled upon to have like a, a UFO interest. Oh, not only that, it was frowned upon yeah. vigorously. I mean, this is talking to the guy who is, you know, the, I guess the CEO of the corporation and the, uh, the grand poobah of the uh, OTO, supposedly, if you buy that, that is the OTO. Uh, federal courts say so as if they can rule on what is a the real the real catholic church as opposed right. to, i mean it's just something they should have dismissed out of hand you know as yeah. something that is not it it, it uh, gets into the way of the uh, church state separation that mm-hmm. we were supposed to have up until very recently when the court mysteriously changed into well, I'm not going to go into Trumpian politics because right. that, yeah. that that hits too many people in their uh, lower anatomy, which is not my intent. They buy books too, and yeah. uh, in any case, by the time I had a you know a fairly good list, I was convinced that the cipher. It works for occult stuff, but it works for UFO stuff, and it has a mm. predictive quality. Mm. And uh, if you have a an idealized case like an object lands, uh, a being gets out who introduces itself as blah, 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 uh, and tells you whatever message there is, and it becomes uh, headline news, at least in local papers, and uh, and news everywhere, and certainly news throughout the then relatively small ufology community, uh, chances are it will predict where the next landing will take place. 
So I tried it on a couple of cases and it worked dandy. And then I started to get requests from a couple of your fellow podcasters. <laughs> well, prove it by doing it. I said, I don't, the book is supposed to convince people to try this themselves. And if they get no results, let us know about that. Because I, I don't won't conceal something that is contrary to the theoretical structure that I have. I mean, I'm not wedded to any theories. Uh, theories come last, facts come first. And there's a kind of a sliding scale there with stuff that nobody really is expert in. You know, who are the experts in ufology? Is it geologists or uh, cosmologists or psychologists or uh, where do you, where do you draw the line? Because it depends on who you are. So it winds up that a bunch of enthusiastic amateurs are the closest thing to experts that you right. have, especially the ones who, you know, are not dogmatic about much of anything. And thus you get hellier, you know, Sure. Yeah. Uh, the people who start off with very, very low, uh, uh, a low level of opinion and a high level of curiosity. Uh, something you won't find on the history channel. Mm, right. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, we, we were definitely going to ask you about, yeah, what that experience was like kind of being, I mean, it, to a certain extent, it felt like it must have felt kind of strange to have like this book that you published a while back sort of come up in this like, very separate investigation, right? I was surprised that, you know, anybody knew was reading it. Uh, when it first came out, as I said, the Illuminate Press edition did quite well. And then I expected whether it, you know, fell my way in any royalties or anything or not, that people would start working with it. And my major concern was that if, you know, if people started working with the cipher and were able to predict uh, cryptozoological or UFO events, that uh, the cipher would change because I have some reason to believe that the, between the Enochian cipher and certain Masonic ciphers and the cipher from Liberal, uh, there have been a number of changes uh, by whoever or whatever generate generates a cipher because they don't 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 want others you know filming the landing or whatever i mean yeah. or or shooting them down or whatever the uh the i mean these stories about people having bounties on bigfoot is one of the most <laughs> ghoulish and yeah. conceivably homicidal things I have heard. Yeah, it's like killing uh, killing the Easter bunny or something like that. <laughs> no, it's like killing another human being, which right. happens a lot, yeah. but still is not justified and is considered <laughs> by most to be a homicide. Mm. So, uh, yeah. I, and there are, there are any number of people who said, I had it in my sights, but it looked so human, I couldn't shoot it. Right. But for every one of those, there's somebody out there with a, an AK bought, brought back from Vietnam or something that just, well, I, I need the bounty. And it's not, if it's human, it's subhuman. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bring it home. Okay. 
Of course, and, that's yeah. assuming that these are physical beings, and right. I don't assume that at all. They vanish in front of people's eyes, and I think it's part of the same thing as UFOs that vanish and yeah. gray aliens that vanish. It's it's the same stuff. To get back so. to that question about, you know, is there resistance between, let's say, occultists and ufologists? Mm. On both sides, there is enormous resistance, less so now than, let's say, even 10 years ago. But still, there's a lot of hostility to the other ones. What uh, Big Bill told me was, well, you see, the, and he said this with a straight face while a jam session he was doing with the band Psychic TV, if you've ever mm -hmm. heard of them. Of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, he's saying, well, the occult is respectable in academic circles, and we're seeking that respectability, but UFOs aren't. Well, he was the boss, so what was I going to do? Yeah. You, just, you just spread your cheeks and you hope for the best. You know? <laughs> uh, so I said, oh, well, you know, I wrote a sequel. He said, is, is it been published? I said, uh, no. And I, I chickened at that point because I was still invested in the OTO. So it was 10 years between the two editions. I was still in the OTO when it was published, but by then, I didn't give a damn, you know, yeah. I decided they don't know anything. So, you know, if they want to kick me out, there is a very, very, very long footnote in the, uh, the second part of Complete Secret Cipher. In, the, in other words, the part of uh, the, the rituals of the men in black. And that footnote is aimed entirely at the. Uh, leadership of the OTO. It never says that exactly, but it argues essentially you're, uh, you're cutting yourself off from your own roots. And uh, I go on at some length about the, the whole Alistair Crowley canon, which I, you know, even then I was not, uh, I didn't buy into his holy writ. I don't think hmm. that's that's the appropriate response to it, but they do. And if you consider that, well, it starts out with a praetor human being dictating this holy book to Alistair Crowley, who dutifully uh, writes it down and eventually realizes that it's important and publishes it and praises it and makes it the centerpiece of his work. And then he has contact with uh, this being called Lamb, who's remarkably like the gray aliens of, of more course, recent yeah. times. I mean, it, you go through the whole the whole thing. The Thelemic canon is dependent on some sort of interpretation of um, UFO lore, among other things. Right. And if you cut that off, you're entirely missing your own point. You're Right. on your own petard, a term I've never actually known what it means, but it, it sounds correct in this context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a uh, that's fascinating stuff, and that's an excellent way to put it too. Um, that original connection. I mean, it's interesting too because you know Charles Fort, you know, was writing about all of these strange connections, and there's a separation that happens somewhere where it's this is nuts and bolts and, and these guys are looking for Bigfoot and these guys are looking for the Loch Ness Monster. But I feel like your work has, is you know, been crucial in, in bridging that gap and 
kind of maybe maybe in terms of like uh do you still use the application of the term ultra terrestrials? Do you still subscribe to that in the John Keel sense? Well, not necessarily in the John Keel sense, because I'm not sure that John sure. throughout his fairly long career had exactly the same interpretation that he had, uh, you know, uh, early on when he wrote Operation Trojan Horse, which actually was a much longer book. And his publisher said, it's already long. So the next couple of books, uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, and I don't remember which three came first, but, you know, he had a long uh, career, and I don't think he stayed on the same page to his general credit, but I think ultra-terrestrial uh, applies if you assume that what you are seeing or what people are reporting is what is actually the source of that particular uh, uh, stimulus, the mm -hmm. phenomena. I think that, and this is another one of my little sermons that I try to hold for, uh, for conventions, which I don't get invited to very much, although I do have a policy of if half the audience doesn't leave, I feel like I've failed at my uh, task. But um, where was I? Senior moment. Help me here. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Keel's eighth or Keel's ultra terrestrials. I feel like he he hones in on something very specific in the eighth tower. Um, where that's, yeah, that's a pretty late book, you know. That's... Right, like his fifth unified field theory sort of. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like he's kind of getting at that. There's you know, different languages, there's a different superimposition for one thing that is interpreted by many, many people. Um, yeah. And I, I'm just curious, like, you know, if there's still a trickster element involved in that and, you know, maybe if the trickster element is a means to peel back the layers of reality, um, you know, I, obviously there's the consideration towards malevolence uh or you know super consciousness um kind of rambling a bit but yeah it's kind of like interesting to interrogate maybe the intention of the phenomena in this whole well, where thing. i was headed and this may speak to the trickster element because i consider that neutral and classically tricksters are not necessarily good or evil right. they are somewhere in the middle and uh, my argument is you cannot be a magus without also being uh, a montbank which is you know a con man uh, <clears throat> a juggler somebody who seemingly defies reality through talent a magician someone who uh, creates illusions but also creates uh, Re realities out of non-realities and then the magus who is beyond that which are the four permutations of uh, the tarot card the magus but um where i uh, sort of was headed with that was keep in mind that from a biological perspective human beings it just came down out of the trees and stood upright 10 minutes ago. I mean, if you, in terms of the 
period of time that there has been organic life on the earth insofar as we know. And from a uh, geological standpoint, it's, you know, 30 seconds ago. And from a cosmological standpoint, it's a fraction of a second. The notion that the senses that we developed when we stood upright, uh, stereo vision, stereo hearing, uh, the five senses that are generally acknowledged, are they equipped to do anything beyond to uh, eat and not get eaten, to reproduce without getting eaten in the act, uh, like the black widow spider, uh, uh, and uh, similar functions. In other words, the basic things that for most of the existence of Homo sapiens, that's all we did. Um, there was, there's no indication that we were, uh, you know, speculating beyond uh, 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 the, the most primary functions. And then along came agriculture <laughs> and civilization. And, but still, we are those basic five senses with perhaps an intuitive sense that is not universally credited yet. But is that sufficient to resolve something that is truly not from this universe? And my tentative answer is no. Mm. So what do we see if there's a stimulus, but not uh, something that we can resolve? What does the human brain do with it? And there's all kinds of research on that for mm. other reasons altogether that uh, uh, we resolve it in the best way that we can, whether it's, you know, Bigfoot or a gray alien or, or uh, it's a wisp or it's a ghost or whatever, could all be the same thing. You get that a bit from the Whitley Strieber account, you know, right. the right. masks, um, but um, I don't think the final mask is even something that's intentional, maybe, but probably is uh, the limitation of our consciousness uh, to resolve whatever it is the stimulus is. And in, in, uh, the stimuli are maybe mm. would be better. And uh, so I tend to take these cases in somewhat symbolic terms although I think they do have a real uh, uh, source mm. in, in reality, just as when you look at stars, uh, you're not really, in most cases, you're not seeing the star. You're getting a, a mm. stimulus from the fact that stars are <clears throat> great energy sources. Right. But... Uh, without the help of the you know, telescopes and the human eye is not really built to uh, uh, resolve it more than just a twinkling point of light. So I think the yeah. same thing applies. And therefore, you know, I, I listen to the cases and the trickster element when it comes in, like in the Joe Simonton case with the 
And he prepared them buckwheat pancakes. Uh, I I don't dismiss the case. I think it's it's the situation where people cope with these things as best they can. And it needs to be seen in those terms. And the photos and the the pictures that have shown up, they basically, uh, they're designed to be within the spectrum of things that we can see, because what would be the point of the, I used to use uh, this little joke where in one of my uh, fanzines that I got out, it would show a blank page, white page, and it would say at the bottom, white Dero in a snowstorm. <laughs> and then you turn the page and there was nothing but black ink on the page. And at the bottom, it would say black Dero at midnight. <laughs> and some people didn't get it, but it was, uh, it was making a, an important point, I think. Yeah, do you think like, so it, it's, it's possible that all of these sorts of different shifting paranormal, for lack of a better term, uh, encounters or sightings or somehow projections of the same source kind of like uh, projected through our ability to see it in in a way? Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure that it's the same source, but I'm, I would assume that it's the same source is, that is, you know, maybe more than one entity or sure form or whatever and some of them are unintentional i think you know um, a lot of uh, ghost cases for example uh, they seem to be operating on a different plane of existence but sometimes yeah. in multi-witness cases they notice the witnesses and then they disappear like mm. What the hell is that? (laughs) You know, they see the ghost and we're the ghosts, I guess. So um, I think there are are the deliberate uh, encounters. And then I think probably much, much more uh, common, there are glitches in the matrix Mm. on a daily basis everywhere. And some of them we just filter out because uh, we we do have to continue to right. eat and not get eaten and, you know, hopefully to reproduce and not get eaten when we're doing that, mm-hmm. you know. So there, uh, your basic human functionality has to continue if the human race is to continue. But um, uh, I think the best description was in a late 19th century book about geometry, the uh, Edwin Abbott's, which is public domain, by the way, uh, uh, description of uh, flatland. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's something that everyone who is interested in these phenomena uh, should read because basically towards the end of it, he's talking about the possibility that maybe there are other dimensions beyond flat land and sphere land. And, yeah. uh, and I think probably there are an infinite number is my best guess. Mm. 
Have you, um, throughout your life, as you were beginning to get more into like practical and ceremonial magic, did you notice any related increase in experiences in, you know, if you have had any uh, like experiences in the UFO or paranormal, uh, like, have you like, is there any kind of like balance between those things, I guess I'm asking? Mm. Well, there are things in magical ritual that are designed to uh, take you to otherwhere, for mm. lack of a Magonia, whatever you want to call it, fairyland, um, and and or bring something from otherwhere here. Mm. And the best results I've gotten with that are. Uh, working the Enochian ethers, never alone. I've always done it with lots of witnesses present, but uh, uh, the, you can get uh, real world, so quote unquote, results from that that are certainly paranormal. Mm. Uh, and uh, in that sense, yes, but in the sense of do I attract more paranormal phenomena or UFO. I don't think I've ever seen a genuine UFO. I've, I've thought I had, but yeah. like uh, in if everyone is subject to suggestion. And mm. if you're in an area that is a doing field research and it's really, really hot for UFO stuff, uh, Brooksville, Florida comes to mind during uh uh, John Reeves' heyday, because practically everybody in the town was, you know, having fairly close encounters. He was the only one that was a, a contactee, I guess you would call him, or an abductee, or a, uh, what do you call a voluntary abductee? <laughs> yeah. A victim of Stockholm Syndrome? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, uh, I saw something, and I had a camera in my hand. And um, I was with uh, Ron Reitner and the late uh, Joan Reitner, who were the local, you know, the, uh, they were from St. Pete, and they were the local people that knew all of the witnesses in that area. And what I did was I saw this thing rising up from the ground and not being, clearly not being an aircraft or something. And my response was, Oh my God, look at that. Oh my God, look at that. But it turned out it was a launch from uh, Cape Canaveral across the state. And when it reached a certain altitude, uh, it had a uh, stage separation, which is what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it just shows, you know, Alan, at that point, 15 years, an investigator, calm, cool, and collected. <laughs> I didn't even touch my camera. I went, oh, my God, look at that. I mean, look at that. And Ron is taking pictures. I said, look at that. Because that sense of wonder can override just about anything. Sure. But no, the, the closest I can claim uh, is that when I do something that is related to any of the paranormality, for lack of a universal term, which I hope develops, um, I will have a bunch of synchronicities happen, mm, right. not necessarily related to it, but, you know, it's uh, 
nevertheless coincides too closely to be called coincidence, which yeah. I kind of doubt the whole concept of coincidence, but I do think synchronicity is far more common than most people think. Yeah. And when I get close to, uh, they used to call it fairy glamour, which is, you know, the fairies throw their pixie dust and stuff happens. And uh, when I'm close enough to get that pixie dust, what happens to me, and I'm not the only one, I mean, there are a lot of people that this report this same thing, is they get a bunch of synchronicities mm -hmm. and uh, they trail off at some point. But yeah, that I get. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, a UFO hovering outside my window, let me look. <laughs> no, 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 there's nothing out there except the garden. Uh, and the gardener, he's gray and I'm lying. <laughs> lying. Yeah. Cosmic so, gardener. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, think we, we've both experienced that for sure. The, the, you get on a certain trail and then the, the synchronicities just start to like start popping up everywhere. Um, the advice I gave the Hellier people uh, obtains with anybody that does field research, which I urge every able-bodied person willing to take a few risks to do mm. is to follow the synchronicities. Mm. Because yeah. if you do, it may, it, your initial goal may change, but you're headed in the direction of some kind of really important what's it. And the closer you follow the synchronicities, the more likely it is that you're going to have some really important experiences. Mm. Assuming you don't get lost in a cave somewhere and get eaten by a deer or a bear, which is more likely, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that's an interesting direction. Uh, it makes me think of in, in Grant's books, he writes about um, the concept of tangential tantrum, which is maybe like undesired or unexpected uh, effects or symptoms of magical workings. Um, yeah, and it harkens back to the idea of, of window areas too, and maybe it's obvious, but is there a connection between um, ceremonial magic and, and the concept of window areas? Well, ceremonial magic has a number of techniques for uh, creating temporary windows mm. And in fact, uh, people who are really not well prepared uh, magically shouldn't be doing it at all. Because mm -hmm. one of the most important things, like on the rare occasions when I teach something about magic, I teach people to do exorcisms and banishings before I teach them anything about doing any kind of positive magic. Mm -hmm. Because it's a lot easier to open gates than to close them. Mm. And I think our, our great example of an unclosed gate was Jack Parsons mm. and, and uh, Elron, Elron, Ron, Ron, Elron, Ron, uh, going out in the desert and doing this thing and then leaving. And of course, they had effects, uh, some of them sort of thing that you'll find in the back of the grail within plug number two. <laughs> uh, but um, actually, uh, I think people, if they want to start, they should read Complete Secret Cipher and then read Saucers and Saucers and see what mad men we were when we were young and foolish. 
but resisting the uh, nuts and bolts people on the one side and the ga 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 contactee types on the other. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a tough, tough ride for a long time. But um, you, you need to know how to to do that. Uh, in in terms of uh, it being connected, I think that magic is a technology of the sacred, to borrow a term from one of uh, the Bertio-generated organization. In other words, it's a way of opening and closing portals to one or another of the uh, I hate to, to call them alternative universes because the term universe may not even apply to it. Because mm-hmm. one thing that is almost certainly true is the laws of physics, as we understand them, do not apply necessarily. I mean, I'm, I would imagine if there are, as I suspect, an infinite number of alternatives that um, some of them resemble earth to an eerie extent i mean duplicates of yourself you know things like that and there's even some thought thought that you know when you die here you go there and become you know hopefully a younger and healthier version of yourself but that's speculative and uh not something that i necessarily think i think uh, is the case but you will if they're an infinite number, by definition, if you can think of it, it's there somewhere. And how much of this, you know, uh, transposes into our reality and how much of it doesn't, that's an open question that I don't have an answer for. They could all be from one alternate reality that is vaguely similar to our own, or they could be from an infinite number or, you know, one of the criticisms of ufology is why don't they all look alike and <laughs> you know sound alike and say the same things they all come from the planet area or you know something something else or uh they're all saying we're from the uh, dark side of the moon which is now apparently a chinese property uh, which they're you know selling real estate on but uh uh we don't know we do know that they vary a lot but they do have elements in common that indicate that they interact with our reality in relatively fixed ways and we respond to those fixed ways in ways that uh, have something to do with the way we uh process reality which you know, that's about as far as we can go on that. But in terms of, you know, using ceremonial magic as a means of opening a portal and going through it, first, you need to have very good survival skills. Mm-hmm. And second, you need to spend, oh, 10 to 20 years learning ceremonial magic, including uh, how to get out of a difficult situation. <laughs> and if you don't know that, don't try this at home. Fair warning. <laughs> yeah, I try to give that warning because people will dive in, and um, I don't know. The enthusiasm is good, but you know, I always say you were doing that, and you didn't have an 
Orgon energy accumulator in your pocket. <laughs> uh, you were investigating this cult and you really didn't have a pistol in your pocket because mm. they were probably not glad to see you. you sure. know? I mean, yeah. it, I mean, there are practical, practical considerations. Uh, you need to know what you're doing and then you need to document it and share it. And I would, you know, I, I fondly hope there will be lots and lots of people that'll be doing that. And, you know, I, I hate to keep mentioning, I don't hate to keep mentioning, I mean, just uh, Hellier was the first I had seen mm. that with professional production values and uh, a, a sincerity that I wish I had seen all along in ufology just going with the flow and following the synchronicities and not having some one big experience where the ufo lands and takes <laughs> right. them inside and teaches right. them the alphabet and uh, whatever you know whatever the particulars are and that's that's a pretty good model for where to go i would add when you go into a mine shaft please wear a helmet and please leave somebody outside in, in case of a cave-in. Also, don't worry so much about pan. Worry about bears, bears that might be hibernating or they might have cubs and they might not take too well to people saying, yo, pan. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. But, uh, but, uh, yeah, they, they deserve an Emmy for that actually. And yeah, that, absolutely. That may be coming may be coming, but I hope there are others who, you know, take that to the next level and the next level and the next mm. level. And you need people who are young enough to do this sort of thing. And also who have enough background experience that they don't wind up becoming one of the thousands of people that disappear without a trace every mm. single year. Mm. Right. Yeah, uh, echoing that, did you have any explicit thoughts about chaos magic when, when that thing first started happening? When what started happening? I, mean, uh, I guess the I, early books on chaos magic and kind of like a more experimental nature to magical practices. Well, uh, I, I think what I was saying about the implicits in the universe I think that comes out of uh, chaos theory, mm -hmm. which is a you know an orthodox scientific theory, not necessarily universally accepted, but it's you know had its a trend during the period of the the hippies who saved physics, which is the name of a book that I highly mm -hmm. recommend. But uh, these are very old hippies now, but uh, back in the '60s, where 1960s, where uh, physics had sort of reached uh, the standard model and nothing goes beyond it. They changed everything. Mm. And a lot of these guys are still around, but I don't see a new generation of physicists taking it to a level beyond that. Um, chaos magic, while it has some of the same burdens as other schools of magic, which is a lot of ego boo and, you know, mm. uh, personality cults and things of that sort. I think it's on the right right track, which is if you follow the path of, I guess you would call it following the synchronicities, mm. the magic works. And if you don't, the magic doesn't work. 
and I know that's oversimplifying what they've had to say. Maybe it needs a little oversimplification. But yeah, I've got no quarrel with chaos yeah. magic. I'm, I do have uh, some reservations about some of the personality mm. cults that develop in in that direction. Sure. Mm. The only personality cult I recognize is sitting in this chair, and <laughs> I do have the answers, but most of them I won't tell you now because it would drive you mad. <laughs> have you uh, have you applied the cipher to any of the the newer news in in ufology? Uh, Tom DeLong is Tom DeLong um, registering uh, Christ-like um, comparisons. Well, I, I don't know if that's a perfect <laughs> comparison. <laughs> I'll wait until he rises from the dead. But I mean, I've got no complaint about him. He seems to be a conventional ufologist mm. who is famous in another area. And the only other person I know of in that respect is William Gary Keith Breeze. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, it, it, what he's what he's preaching is not what I'm preaching, but I have, you know, people who have relatively conventional views of the phenomena. I'm okay with them doing that, but I'm not okay with them saying, oh, but don't get into this, the really weird stuff. Mm -hmm. So DeLong is fine, you know? <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's a very generous, a generous take on it, I think, which is nice. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I feel like that's really driving the the popular discourse about UFOs right now is that sort of pushing for disclosure. Uh, yeah, well, that that is a problem because yeah. it's it's a it's a diversion. Again, if that was what NICAP in its heyday was all about, mm. you know, mm. the government knows, and it's our job to get them to reveal the truth. Kehoe's yeah. books. Now dust, more or less, but <laughs> like Kehoe himself, but uh, but uh, uh, basically, you flying saucers, top secret. <laughs> I think that was his bestseller, you know, yeah. flying saucers from outer space, uh, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that that kind of approach, and that's all that really NICAP did, you know, and it recorded cases and it had a really big caseload that was, uh, I think they published, and that was more Richard Hall's doing, I think. Uh, I think it was called the UFO Evidence. I don't yeah. remember. Yeah. A little boring, but nevertheless, it was a catalog of cases. And MUFON, which is not my favorite uh, organization, nevertheless, although there are people in it that I have great respect for, nevertheless, they do publish an online catalog of cases. So that's good. Hmm. even lits you know lights in the sky cases it's important because we don't know what is and is not important right right sure yeah huh that's a good point maybe this is sort of out of well this is sort of a left field question but are you familiar with the work of uh eugenia macer story no but i'll fake it if you want <laughs> no darn i thought we were going to get into some kind of yeah she i feel like she was uh traveling in sort of the same circles as you another sort of occultist slash ufologist um i'm hoping there will be more and more of those you know I, that's, yeah it seems like we, we have there. no center 
whatsoever. <laughs> and some of that's by design. I mean, I am an advocate of free illuminism, mm. which is you don't have a boss, you don't have bosses, you don't have dogma, and you don't charge for what you do. And yeah. that is, there are groups all over the world that subscribe to that notion. Mm. But uh, I don't necessarily know everybody that's involved. Sure. And because the design is sort of modeled on God Emperor of Dune, Golden Path, which is disperse humanity so that we survive mm. somewhere. Um, <clears throat> I'm delighted that there are people and organizations that I've never heard of. It means it isn't centered on me or on my ideas or anybody else's and never will be because it's it's out there in the realm. I only hope people share what they uh, come up with and that there are people who become archivists and correlators who yeah. uh, can figure out what this is about, for which I rely on you podcasters, <laughs> all yeah, yeah. of you, to, to put out there and see where it goes. Uh, I suspect that will be what the next generation of the phenomena is, <laughs> unless, of course, it's all on the History Channel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there, I, guess, I always say when they ran out of stock footage of World War II, <laughs> yeah. suddenly they're interested in ghosts yeah. and UFOs <laughs> and paranormal stuff. And yeah. these expert plumbers who go into a house and if they hear a rat in the wall, they go, <gasps> let's, let's do our EM thing with uh, their electromagnetic effects. Clearly. A ghost inhabits yeah. this house. And maybe they daylight Next. as exterminators, you know, <laughs> killing two birds with one stone. No, they really are plumbers, actually. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> um, That's great. Do you think there's any any uh, bounds on the use of the cipher in terms of what it's applied to? Um, I know that in in your book, there's a really great uh, section on the application to the, some of the works of Philip K. Dick, and they're not exactly fiction. But um, do you think there's anything to be gained from um, experimenting with the cipher with works of fiction? Oh, yeah, sure. Because I'm not sure there. Right. This is I'm not sure there is a sharp line between fiction and nonfiction. OK, so if that puts me in the doghouse of the crazy people, <laughs> then I'm in the doghouse of the crazy people. But I know a lot of science fiction writers and most of them are anti-mystical. I mean, everybody has their own turf in this stuff. It's like mm. bad neighborhoods in LA, you know? I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's a turf war. But uh, Phil Dick was, uh, who I never met, unfortunately. Uh, he didn't do a lot of traveling. And uh, so we never had the opportunity. Anyway, most of the science fiction writers I've met, can I say asshole on your program? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes, are assholes, or they were. And uh, we got into, I mean, I got into an argument with Ursula Le Guin. I love her works, but I thought she was totally off base mm. uh, about Philip K. Dick. She was, oh, he's sexist. I said, he's been married five times. <laughs> I think he probably has a somewhat 
negative take on relations between the sexes for really good reasons because <laughs> everything he writes is quasi autobiographical <laughs> and she said well they made up um but uh i never heard from ursula again now there is that that kind of uh i've noticed that in science fiction writers and it's interesting we had an interview with a horror, horror writer nicole cushing who was until recently very not interested in any of the paranormal, had no stake in it, but wrote these very weird fiction kind of paranormal things until she had this crazy series of synchronicities around Mothman and is now like extremely interested in like the Shaver mythos and Mothman and that whole kind of like hub. And so it, it was actually a really interesting conversation to talk to someone who very recently kind of left this kind of counterintuitive, to me at least, like orthodoxy within genre fiction, where they're kind well, of- Well, you have yeah. Whitley Strauber. I mean, up until mm -hmm. Communion, he was a horror That's fiction true. writer. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's, it's not totally new, but one would hope people would, <laughs> there are no, I better not say no. I don't know of any great writers who happen to be interested in this whole panoply of strangeness mm. there are fair to middling good writers but not somebody that you would expect to make the new york times bestseller list and the last person to do that was frank edwards in the 1960s mm. and he wrote the you know pop culture version of of ufo stuff so right. I, I knew him and uh he would tell racist jokes in his hotel room so that and also unkind comments about uh, one of the uh, coaches on the Atlanta Braves. I guess that was to put him in with a group of Southerners who happened to be not part of the the old South Gestalt. So. Uh -huh. Uh, he would, uh, you know, he, he was not the person, but he was a he was a first line writer. Mm. And then you, you have other people like Keel who were mm, first line writers, but not in uh, strange phenomena, but in, as I pointed out, uh, men's magazines of that period of the, the right. early 60s, like Saga and True and Argosy, the ones I always cite, because they're the ones I read mm -hmm. when I was a teenager and thought was, oh, that's so sophisticated. I found The Island of Lost Women. That's my favorite uh, short story there. But of course, you go back in time, you have Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Mm -hmm and his occasional collaborators and certainly his circle of people, which included Robert E. Howard and uh, uh, most interestingly, E. Hoffman Price, mm. who uh, wrote, uh, co-wrote with uh, Lovecraft, the, the second part of the Through the Gates of the Silver Key, mm. which what it was talking about in fictionalized form was exactly what I'm talking about in, in the uh, 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 the, uh, the M theory type of uh, multiverse. Yeah. And uh, uh, I have some reason to believe that Price, who lived a very long life and made the rounds in Southern science fiction fandom, 
uh, uh, had a pretty good knowledge of uh, the occult. Mm -hmm. So while uh, Lovecraft was uh, strictly a materialist, so he said, uh, unless it was sort of like Stephen King's wife and he dreams these things and mm -hmm. writes them down, um, um, he was definitely a first-line writer, although didn't get any you know, first-line attention in his lifetime. Yeah. By the way, uh, not to plug someone in my family, but my son, Alex Greenfield, uh, look him up on IMDb, mm. uh, makes movies that are uh, occult-themed. And I hear that his thus far magnum opus uh, which is called Lullaby, uh, comes out um, this year, which means sometime in the next six months, That's hopefully awesome. around Halloween, because it's, uh, it's uh, well, I can't talk about the script, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It, it's, it's really, um, it's an occult-themed movie that has as much authenticity in the occult stuff. After all, he was raised Right <laughs> in the occult, as uh, a dark song, which oh, yeah. comes fairly close to what uh, um, the Abramelin ritual is really like. It's mm, condensed right. and has a couple of gratuitous scenes, but other than that, it's uh, it's knowledgeable. Yeah. So that's great to hear. We need more of that stuff. Um, yeah. For sure. Yeah. So congratulations to him, too. Um, yeah, so I guess if you got any closing comments for our listeners as we wrap up here, uh, any warnings, uh, any issues or statements of uh, direction, <laughs> keep your hat on. <laughs> tin foil will not help you. <laughs> yes. And it's not made out of tin anymore anyway. <laughs> In fact, I don't know when it was made out of tin because it was aluminum foil when I was a kid. So, you know, an aluminum foil, well, it will protect you from the heebie-jeebies, but it won't protect you from the aliens or a Russian nuclear attack, right. which could happen at any moment, except they can count just like we can count. And they know number of missiles it's not a likely thing. <laughs> and oh, you want a closing comment? Glory to Ukraine. <laughs> I mean that sincerely. Yeah. Great. Well, excellent. I mean, that was so much stuff in there. And thanks so much for coming on. We deeply, deeply appreciate it. Yeah. Well, let me know when it's aired and I'll let yeah. my, uh, my uh, thousands of fans... <laughs> Yeah, of course, your Illuminati handlers as well. Yeah. Well, they, they have to approve. They're you know? already Otherwise, in the room. It, yeah. You'll find that your recording has mysteriously been erased. And yeah. Instead, it's a bunch of uh, uh, Max Fleischer cartoons from the 1930s, black and white. You know? oh, yeah, yeah. No uh, Betty Boop, yeah. though. No, no Betty no, Boop. No Betty Boop. Uh, um, cool. Yeah, we will definitely be in touch soon. And... Thanks again for coming on. Oh, you you guys ask the right questions. You really do. And that's not always the case. So thank mm -hmm. you so much for inviting me. 
and I'm available. <laughs> if right. you need somebody in September or something, here I am. Right. <laughs> thanks awesome. again, and uh, thanks as always for listening.